Hey, well, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are continuing our Through Nicaea series today. Um, in episode one, we did an introduction and historical survey, and so we're not going to go over too many of the historical details. We're going to go more over the theological details here. Of course, there will still be some historical aspects that I throw in because that's just how I do things. Uh, but the focus is on theological contributions, and uh, specifically today we're talking about Christian writers. Um, and we're not going to be able to cover every Christian writer. There's there's a lot of them. Uh, we're covering some of the highlighted ones, some of the predominant ones, specifically related to their theological contribution to the Nicene Creed. So last time we did preliminaries and heresies that were pre-Nicene, you know, before 325 heresies. And... Um, just like the Christian writers, we didn't cover every single possible heresy, and we we won't really. We're going to um, go through this and highlight the Arian controversy, and then I'll mention a couple of others. Um, but those heresies give you the general idea of what these pre-Nicene Christian writers are addressing whenever I mention things like Gnosticism and things of that nature. And so if you haven't listened to that episode, that'll give you that framework. Now, before we begin this episode... I actually want to lay out some definitions, key terms that will help us navigate some of these developments, because um, if you haven't read them before, you're kind of like, well, what does he mean by that? Uh, so we're going to define four terms. The first one is generation, and we're going to talk about generation a little bit uh, down the road of this episode, uh, specifically eternal generation. Um, and generation is the property of the Son in relation to the Father. So since God is eternal, uh, the relation between the Father and Son are eternal as well. They're, they're eternally the Father, eternally the Son. Um, and generation is not like human generation or begetting, right? Like having a child. But generation in this sense is beyond our understanding in that there's an eternal dynamic where the Father communicates deity to the Son, and that will be developed by the early church writers. But um, we'll talk about whether or not there's even a scriptural basis for that understanding and why it came up, um, but you need to know that term. Uh, the next is essence. Essence, nature, or usia, um, that's the fundamental nature of something, what something is. It's being, it's nature. We are humans by nature. That's our nature. Our essence is human, humanity. Um, and then another term would be hypostasis. And before 381, like we talked about, this could be um, used for person or nature. It could be used as usia and hypostasis were basically, uh, you know, interchangeable. And so sometimes whenever we read this stuff, we have to define it in English terms to understand what a writer is talking about because using the hypostasis usia distinctions before AD 381 uh, becomes problematic because that's whenever they were really hammered out to have distinctions between essence in person. So hypostasis could mean person or nature, um, but we typically recognize it as person nowadays. God is one in usia, or essence, and three in hypostasis, persons. And a person refers to who? Um, a person subsists, exists within their nature, and acts through it, right? Uh, so essence and person, those are key terms here. So with that said, I um, wanted to make that real brief. And I encourage you to go find uh, some kind of resource to look up those terms and uh, better comprehend them if you need to. So um, whenever we talk about these things, they are more primitive in nature because we talked about uh, the development or articulation of language 
to express what the Bible is teaching. And so that's what we find here. And what's interesting is that sometimes, like with the the Creed of 325, you'll have usia being used, and it creates a problem because of how it is interchangeable with hypostasis. And so they are left to hammer out those distinctions after they realize that their language was not precise enough, right? So that kind of, I mean, honestly, that happens with us too. Sometimes we have to correct ourselves and be more precise whenever we're explaining stuff to each other. Anyway, let's get into predominant Christian pre-325 writers. So the first one is Ignatius of Antioch, and he's usually placed in history based off of his arrest in AD 110 or his death in AD 115. He was a contemporary of the Apostle John. He is traditionally considered linked to or discipled by Peter. Um, and he was martyred around AD 115. And he is known for seven epistles that he wrote during his period of waiting for martyrdom. In his letter to the Trillians, he states that Jesus was really born. He really ate and drank. And uh, he was truly persecute, uh, persecuted, crucified, and died. Uh, and you can see that in his work um, to the Trillians. Uh, further, he stresses that he was really raised from the dead, and he notes, but if, as some atheists, and atheist is another term for unbelievers, say he, that is Jesus, suffered in appearance only, why am I in chains, and why do I want to fight with wild beasts? If that is the case, then I die for no reason. Uh, so contrary to uh, the opponent's, of Ignatius, you know, John the Apostle's contemporary, he notes that Jesus truly was in the flesh, and that if he was only here in appearance, then his suffering is all in vain, right? He's dying for nothing. Um, so, now, if you remember, we had that discussion about whether or not Gnostic teachings um, were around at this time, whether or not John was writing, the Apostle John was writing, um, you know, towards Gnosticism, and so that's a big debate. But regardless of where you stand on that debate, what we find is that Ignatius is defending the actual incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh. So that's that's the key here. Um, so Ignatius carries this idea further, um, where John says that those who deny the incarnation are antichrist, and he takes it further by saying um, that there is only one physician who is both flesh and spirit, born and unborn, God and man, true life and death, both from Mary and from God, first subject to suffering, and then beyond it, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that is um, from his letter to the Ephesians. Uh, next, we're going to survey Logos Christology and Justin Martyr. Logos is where we translate word. You know it from John 1.1 mostly. In the beginning was the Logos or the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. Um, and Justin Martyr is typically placed between AD 100 and AD 165. He is known as one of the apologists. Uh, it's a group of Christian writers who were exactly that, apologists giving a defense for the faith, specifically related to Greek um, philosophy and how they understood philosophy. Uh, and Wellam and other theologians will point out that Justin is one of the most important players in the development of what is called a Logos Christology. So Logos is the divine word, as we said, um, but um, Willem notes about Justin that Justin believed that the Logos was an important link between Christian and Hellenistic thought. As a student of the philosophers, Justin claimed that the philosophers were basically correct on many points, although their overall view was incomplete since it lacked Christ. Thus, despite the differences between pagan philosophical thought and Christianity, Justin maintained that Greek thought had hints of the truth 
which was more than mere happenstance. So Justin, uh, he wasn't alone in this. Uh, there were other apologists like um, Athenagoras and Theophilus of Antioch, and they all worked to understand the preexistence of Christ as the Logos in relation to the Father. Uh, but Justin was the most articulate and developed on this particular point. Their fundamental stress, however, was that Jesus is one with the Father, existing within God, and appearing in human history as the Logos, or word expressed, or emitted. Um, Theophilus of Antioch is actually the first to use the term triad for God, um, to mean that God is three, and he actually claimed that the first three days of creation are types of the triad, or triunity of God. Um, The first one to use Trinity specifically would be... um, Tertullian, but what's interesting is that you're talking about a much um, older use of triad whenever some people would be like, well, the word Trinity was invented at the Council of Nicaea in 325. So if anyone ever tells you that, no, it's false. We have triad with Theophilus of Antioch, and then we have Tertullian's articulations, which is 50 years before um, Nicaea. So those types of myths can be taken out by just knowing some history. Uh, Next is Irenaeus. You know, I've heard his name pronounced so many different ways at this point, but regardless, Irenaeus is typically placed between AD 130 and AD 200. He was born in Asia Minor, and he was a disciple of Polycarp. Um, If you don't know who Polycarp is, Polycarp is another writer that we have um, some works of, and he was a disciple, Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So we have the Apostle John discipling Polycarp, and Polycarp discipled Irenaeus. So those close connections are really put things into context about when these people are writing. It's really early. Um, we tend to think of, you know, second century as being later compared to Jesus' lifetime and the apostles, but it's just really, um, really not. And a little sidebar to that is that it always blows my mind that a century is really just a lifetime. With an average lifespan of about 70 years, you're talking almost a century. Um, so these gaps aren't as big as we typically think of them. We tend to exaggerate the time gaps, I think. At least I do, um, and so I need to always put that in perspective. Anyway, um, Irenaeus's two note, notable works are Against Heresies and Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. Against Heresies is a um, is a famous work, and it's his best known, and it was written against a form of Gnostic teachings led by a man named Valentinus and Marcion, and you may know Marcion from reading some um, theology books or history books, um, but... That's who Irenaeus is writing against. He's writing against Gnostic teachers. Um, So in his work, Irenaeus pushes back against the notion of a supreme being who is inconceivably transcendent and distant from the material world. So remember that we discussed Gnosticism in the last episode. So if you want to get that fundamental definition and understanding of it, go back to the last episode. And that's going to be the case with all these heresies that we're bringing up here. So in contrast to uh, the Gnostic adversaries of his day, Irenaeus presents that there is one God who exists as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also that this God is the creator of the material world, Uh, and this world was created out of nothing, the famous phrase being ex nihilo. And so God created the world by his word, the Logos, and by the Spirit. So Irenaeus will describe the word and spirit as the two hands of God, which is actually quite interesting because there's good evidence in Judaism, um, you know, predating... Uh, probably during the Second Temple period, predating the Christian writers, about that concept of the two arms or two hands of God, uh, which gives an idea to a type of uh, early or proto-Trinitarianism within uh, Judaism. So that's interesting, nonetheless. Uh, But regardless, 
So Gnostics would present Jesus, who was a human separate from the Christ, right? So the Christ and Jesus were two different people for the Gnostics, and the Christ would descend upon Jesus, um, because there was this dichotomy, again, dualism, between the material world and the spiritual world. Materialistic world was inherently evil, and the spiritual world was potentially good. So Irenaeus points to Jesus as... Uh, the Christ and the Son, to counter this, who was born of a virgin. And the virgin birth for Irenaeus, uh, using it this way is important because uh, Jesus, the eternal Son, is taking on flesh, and with the material world being inherently evil, that would be um, a, you know, like a big no-no for Gnostic teachings. No, we can't say that the Christ was born of a woman who is material. Uh, So further, God... Irenaeus says, interacts with his creation. Instead of being transcendent beyond it, he interacts with creation, he has direct contact with it. Uh, He doesn't need an intermediary between the material world and the spiritual world. And God in his triunity is working in union and harmony uh, in human or creation history. So according to Irenaeus, uh, the Father plans and gives commands and the Son performs and creates while the Spirit nourishes and increases. Uh, And again, that's from... Um, against heresies 316, no, 438, 438.3, sorry. Um, both Robert Letham and Stephen Wellham are quick to note that the two hands of God articulation posited by Irenaeus has been critiqued as being a type of subordinationism, which we talked about in the last episode. Um, and it is true that sometimes there is this issue of subordinationism present in early Christian writers, but as we quoted before with Robert Letham, um, the early church writings had this understanding of subordinationism, if it was there, as clearly being within the fundamental being of God. Um, And this is the case with Irenaeus. He stresses that the two hands of God are not external to God, but divine and eternal and always with the Father. Um, And again, I'm using the Apostolic Fathers by Michael Holmes, Robert Lethem, the Holy Trinity, Stephen Willem, um, God the Son Incarnate. I'm using uh, Pocket Dictionary Church History. I'm using... Uh, against Praxis, original, some original sources, Philip Schaff, Nick Needham. I'll link the major ones in the description for sources here. Um, so Irenaeus also hints to, he, he hints at the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son. Um, the, the further development of it, or the most, the one who's given the most credit for articulating it is Origen, because he hammered it out more. Uh, but Irenaeus has a hint of it, and he says... Uh, pointing at Isaiah 53, 8. And Isaiah 53, 8 says, who shall declare his generation? Speaking about, you know, it's a messianic psalm. Uh, But Irenaeus highlights that there's this incomprehensible nature of the father's generation of the son. And he does this to contend against the Gnostic claims um, who who claim to have knowledge of how that occurred. Um, And Robert Lethem points out that Irenaeus uses a variety of terms for the generation of the son, such as production, generation, calling, revelation. Um, And he says that for language cannot encapsulate the reality, and so one metaphor is inadequate. The Gnostics had taken it upon themselves to describe the formation of his first generation as if themselves had assisted at his birth, thus assimilating him to the word of mankind formed by emissions. In truth, only the father who beget and the son who was begotten know what this actually means. What we can and do know is that God is revealed through the son, that the son is in the father, and that the son has the father in himself. And that's Robert Lethem on the Holy Trinity. Um, In addition 
to what has been said here, Irenaeus reflects um, on the text of Scripture and focuses upon God's work in history as a triune being. It's a very Trinitarian pattern of creation, and he, and he focuses on God's dealing with the world and salvation from a Trinitarian perspective, uh, again, without using the terms Trinitarian or triunity. For Irenaeus, the Spirit prepares man, the Son leads men to the Father, and the Father gives men incorruption for eternal life. And Irenaeus' view on Jesus' work is one of the earliest um, views of the atonement in the early church called the recapitulation theory. And I'll just use the pocket church history dictionary can, uh, to sum it up here. So Irenaeus and other early church fathers developed a recapitulation theory noted, uh, rooted in Ephesians 1.10, where the Apostle Paul argues that Christ, uh, God in Christ sought to gather up all things in him. Christ, the new Adam, restored fallen humanity to full communion with God through his obedience and willingness to die. In doing so, Christ not only summed up all previous divine revelation in himself, but also became the perfect man that Adam was intended to become, but never achieved. Thus, Christ recapitulated Adam's development and gave the world an example of perfect human righteousness. So in essence, this view of the atonement states that what was lost in Adam is recovered in Jesus Christ by one's union to Jesus, and Jesus is the perfect picture of humanity. Um, in fact, later on we'll find that there's a view that states that um, mankind was created in the image of Jesus, and Jesus is coming back to restore that image that was lost in the fall. And I believe that one was put forward by Athanasius. Um, but anyway, by Jesus's obedience in his life and death, Adam's disobedience is corrected. We have that idea with um, what's called the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. And so salvation begins, though, for Irenaeus in the incarnation. We tend to focus on the crucifixion, while the early church writers put a heavy emphasis on the necessity and importance of the incarnation. So Irenaeus' contribution is a robust articulation of the triunity of God, where the Son and Spirit are fully God without diminishing the divine unity. Uh, further, God is distinct from creation, but creation um, nonetheless has God working uh, with it, God is not too transcendent to interact with creation. Um, and lastly, Wellen points out that Irenaeus gave us two crucial phrases that we will use um, to today, and that is the Son of God has become a Son of Man, and Jesus Christ, the true man and true God. Um, he continues, For Irenaeus, the redemptive work of Christ depends fully on the identity between his humanity and our humanity. This is a high point of Christological clarity, that will be attained again, but not surpassed almost three centuries later at Chalcedon. We're not going to get to Chalcedon in the survey because Chalcedon is um, post-381, because we're, we're stopping at 381 for the Nicene Creed. Um, but a lot of these developments will be um, kept and articulated and fleshed out more at Chalcedon. And so let's move on to Tertullian. Now, Tertullian was born and grew up in North Africa, specifically in Carthage. And he is placed between AD 160 and 230. He was trained in rhetoric and law uh, within a pagan Roman family, and he converted around 197. Now, Tertullian is known for four things. <laughs> One, his influence in the Latin or Western church. Two, his apologetics against some heretics uh, known as uh, Marcion and Praxius. Uh, third, his coining of terms that would be impactful and still used today in relation to Trinitarianism. And four, 
his move into a group known as the Montanists. Uh, the fourth goes beyond our focus here. Um, the Montanists were a hyper-charismatic group, if you will, and Tertullian sympathized with them and eventually became a Montanist as well. And so that's a point of contention with his character and his role, um, but regardless of where you stand on that, his impact on um, our language and our articulation of orthodoxy um, is significant. So Tertullian's work against Praxis is all we know of Praxis himself. Uh, and from there we find that Praxis taught that uh, God was one, and so the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were identical and not distinct. So basically he taught a form of modalism, which is another heresy we talked about in the last episode. So we find um, Tertullian giving us this strong proto-Trinitarianism um, but it's still a Trinitarianism that is articulated within the time frame of 210, 215. Okay, so we can't, again, we have to avoid anachronism. We, we, can't, we can't interject our concepts back onto the early church because we stand on their shoulders for, you know, centuries after centuries. Um, but he stresses that God is indeed one, but that the Father has a Son. He says that his word who proceeded from himself by whom all things were made. On top of that, he notes that there is a paraclete, uh, the sanctifier of the faith of those who believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, of course, that would be the Holy Spirit, the Helper. Now, against Praxis, Tertullian claims that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit um, are three, not in condition, but in degree, not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in aspect, yet of one substance, and of one condition, and of one power, in so much as there is one God. And so Praxis claims that uh, there is one God who is identical in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're not distinct, but they're all one God with different manifestations or forms, depending on what type of modalism practice taught. And Tertullian said, no, they're one in substance and three in person, essentially. And so we actually find this anticipation against other heresies that would arise post-381. That's post-Constantinople and our creed that we're going to be looking at. Um but the terms he coined are really uh, the, the impact, right? So he, he coined trinitus, so for trinity, substance, and persons. Uh, the first is where we get trinity from, as I already said, and he uses it to refer to God. Uh, substance is what God is. The trinity is one substance, and God is one substance and three persons. So for Tertullian, Father, Son, and Spirit are not mere modes of existence for one God, but real eternal distinctions that do not negate the oneness of God. Um, Stephen Wellam notes, by substance, he means the fundamental ontological beingness that makes something what it is, while person refers to the identity of action that provides distinctness. He argues that there is not a demolishing of the single rule of God, the monarchy, um, and Robert Lethem explains this. He says, even the word monarchy does not preclude the governor from having a son or from ruling by whatever agent he chooses. If the monarch has a son and the rule is shared, it still remains a monarchy since the two are inseparable. In the case of God, the son and the spirit are so closely joined to the father in his substance that the monarchy cannot be overthrown. The monarchy is preserved in the son since it was committed to him by the Father. The same applies to the third degree in the Godhead, since the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. Um, so again, at this point, there's this notion or hint of subordinationism 
um, and Tertullian, and, and this is really because he gives a divine ordering of the Godhead. He says that the Father is first, the Son is second, and the Spirit is third. Uh, but many have pointed out, as we mentioned before, uh, he still places this within the nature of the Godhead. But where Tertullian becomes more difficult is that um, he, he hints at the word coming into existence at creation. And as with everything that is debated, um, and you can look more into that, um, but Robert Lethem, he he still um, notes that this is within the Godhead with no implications of infer- inferiority or status, um, no in- inequality of being, uh, and the concepts um, that he presents resolves the issue overall for Tertullian. Um, lastly, for Tertullian, he notes that Jesus had a human soul, which had not been discussed by Irenaeus, but it would be very important for the discussions later on, uh, specifically with a heresy known as Apollinarianism, uh, which denied the human soul of Jesus. And that would be another debate down the road. Um, before we get to origin, it seems right to discuss generation. And this is really because it's kind of foreign to us. In fact, um, I remember a, a while back being pretty skeptical of it, thinking it's pretty speculative and Everything else, it seems kind of made up. Um, but really, the difficulty arises in language. Now, if you think of John 3.16, for example, and you quote it, like just sit there for a second and recall John 3.16 because most of us know it by heart. And whenever you recite it in your mind, do you say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, or do you say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? The chances are, even if you're like me and you use the ESV, you likely thought of the begotten son. Uh, And so this discussion centers around that, begotten son or only unique son or only son, Uh, because there's a Greek term in this text, along with others, it's not the only text with this term, and the term is monogenes, and it's begotten. And so how this term is translated is where the debate really is. Um, So only begotten son is found in creeds and confessions through church history. And in the 19th century, debates arose um, where New Testament scholars have said that this term can simply mean, you know, one and one and only, or only a unique one of its class. So you'll have modern translations say uh, the only unique son, he gave his only son unique of his class, etc. Uh, and they would argue that the proof text of Psalm 274, generation, you are my son, today I have begotten you, can be explained by the incarnation or the resurrection. Um, theologically, the argument is that eternal generation of the Son will lead to a type of subordinate status for the Son. And so, with all this, um, the difficulty really arises whenever we take this idea of the language and we ask, what did the writers mean in their context where they were familiar with the language in that context? And they took it as begottenness. Monogenes meant some type of begottenness for the son. Um, and that's pretty compelling because we, we can look at you know language and uh, study how terms were used and debate those terms until the cows come home. But um, scholars recognize that within that early context, monogenes was recognized as a term of begottenness in some shape or form. Uh, and so that's compelling in itself. Um, so 
this terms of begottenness as well was not understood in just the context of the incarnation, but eternal generation. Uh, the eternal status of the Son as a Son to the Father, and with the Father as a Father. Uh, so this is a big discussion. Uh, it's still a debate today, but it is not pulled out of thin air. There's reason why um, eternal generation or generation of the Son exists. Um, and it was so important that it's included in the Nicene Creed, um, and it's discussed extensively um, by the early church writers, and we'll talk about it anyway. So um, the point here is that it has a precedent from Scripture, um, and that these Christian writers aren't just speculating and making stuff up. They have reasons for believing what they believe, essentially. So we have to give credit, at least. So origin. Um, while Tertullian was influential in the West, Origen would be highly influential in the East, writing predominantly in Greek, uh, though many of his works were lost, and so there's Latin translations that we use and put together, uh, and they were put together by a disciple of his, Rufinus. So Origen is placed typically around AD 185 and 254. Uh, he has a great deal of controversy himself uh, because of his condemnation as a heretic long after his death. Uh, specifically in his views on the soul, pre-existence of the soul, and universalism. That said, we are going to focus upon his contribution, his positive contribution, uh, which comes from his work called uh, On First Principles, and he writes against modalism, adoptionism, and docetism. So from origin, uh, we'll focus in on his articulation of eternal generation of the sun. And so while this doctrine had Primitive forms, like we mentioned with Irenaeus, uh, Origen leans heavily on this teaching for the sake of explaining the relationship between the Father and the Son. So he discusses the differences between human generation, which occurs because of an outward act, an, an external act of passion, um, and he distinguishes that from this eternal generation that is according to God's nature with no beginning other than God himself, who is eternal. So um, the generation of the Son is not external, it's not by passion, it's something that happens within the Godhead eternally, and so there's a distinction there. For origin, there is no point where the Son is non-existent, or the Father is without the Son, and the Son cannot be viewed as a creature, but the generation of the Son is continuous, and the Father communicates his divinity to the Son in every instance. A little sidebar here is that I remember whenever I was first thinking through eternal generation, I was really confused about it because it seemed to compromise the aseity of the sun. And if you don't know what that means, the self-existence of the sun, uh, because it seems to make the sun dependent upon the father. Um, but Origen's distinction here between human generation, that external outward passionate generation versus the generation that occurs eternally within the Godhead solves that issue. Um, and so as you really think about that, aseity is part of the divine nature and generation as something that occurs within the divine nature upholds the aseity of God. And so that that's just where I was. And if you're sitting here thinking that while you hear this articulation, well, that's exactly where an issue falls. And so back to my notes, Robert Lethem and Wellam both pick up on an issue that does arise from Origen's articulation, however, and that is that the father generates the son by his own free act, which leaves open this possibility that the son uh, could never be generated, right? So that's kind of what we're talking about here, that aseity of the sun. 
So this logically could lead to a position where the son is of lesser status and substance of the father. Since the father, by his own will, generates the son, there could be a time when the son was not. The father could choose not to have the son. And so the safety of the son is compromised in that way. But Origen attempts to avoid this by being emphatic on the eternal aspect of the generation. So like I said, he, he tries to correct. He, he sees this problem and he tries to correct it. And, uh, and he states that we cannot impose our human understanding on this generation, especially in light of the mutual indwelling of the three persons in the one divine being. So with all this in mind, we can see where Origen's position of the son deriving his divinity from the father could be seen as subordinationism uh, and utilized by groups later on. In fact, whenever you read, um, you know, I think Schaff and Needham both frame it this way. But post-325 views with Originist theology where there's a degree lesser of divinity um, within the Godhead and some type of eternal subordinationism, um, that becomes a discussion. Uh, but there is a clear distinction between Arianism and Origen's teachings, and we'll highlight that. But it fundamentally hinges on a confusion of language, which Robert Lethem summarizes here. He points out that there's another issue with language, and that there was confusion about the meaning of created and uncreated, and begotten and unbegotten, and all four of those words are very similar in the original language. Uh, and so in this linguistic and conceptual uh, framework of origin, he distinguishes crucially between God uncreated, agenitas, which is applied to all three persons, and God unbegotten, agenetas, there's two news there, um, which is only to be said of the Father. So the Father is unbegotten, and the entire Godhead is uncreated. So there's that distinction there. Only the Son is begotten, but he's still uncreated. Um, in fact, whenever you read early church writings, I was reading Hilary Poiter's, um, and you'll see this emphasis on the unborn God and the born God, or the begotten God, and that would be the distinction between the Father and the Son. And so if you ever read early church writings and you see that translation, that's what they're talking about. The Father is uniquely unbegotten, and the Son is uniquely begotten, but they're all uncreated. And this would become difficult because for Gnostics and Greek thought— Creation and generation were basically interchangeable. So Lethem points out that Origen, on the other hand, distinguishes them, and he enables, he enables the son's begottenness to understand, uh, to be understood within the sphere of deity. And this will, you know, become crucial for Athanasius later on whenever we get to the Arian controversy. So that wraps up this particular episode. And, you know, it, it's not, that kind of stuff is not easy. And so if you're sitting here and you're like, I, 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 that's just, I can't understand that. Don't blame you. Um, if you want to, I would encourage you to dive in and uh, do some research on it. You know, uh, you can find some resources on it um, just by doing a quick Google search on eternal generation of the sun. And you can read up a little bit more on that. Um, it, it's a hard concept. These concepts are not easy, um, but I wanted to at least frame the the context, the historical context and the theological discussions around the Nicene Creed before we got to it, because we do see these concepts coming into play. Uh, whenever we read in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten son, begotten of the father before all ages, uh, that's significant uh, because that is framed within this idea of eternal generation, that the son is eternally begotten and he's not created. And so I wanted to give you guys that framework and give you that, that basic um, concept. And so if you're sitting here thinking that this is hard, it is. Uh, 
I mean, I would be lying if I didn't say that the first few times I've heard this concept and read up on it, I was like, don't, don't get it. And I still really don't fully comprehend it. And obviously origin and everyone else uh, would say, you know, eventually the things of God do go beyond our comprehension, but we have to take into account what the text says about things like monogamous, the only begotten God. How is the son eternally begotten from the father? Um, so yeah, this, this type of stuff does get hard. But hopefully by the time we get to the Nicene Creed and we start breaking down line by line and we get to generation, you'll have that framework to understand the, at least the historical context around it. And of course, we'll break down each section. I just wanted to make sure that all of these things are underneath your belt so that whenever we get to the Creed and go to the line and we re- we get to the line, uh, the only begotten son, begotten of the father, that it's not like, whoa, you know, here's a grenade. There was no prep work. It's just right here in your face. So we're explaining all these concepts. We're fleshing them out. We're sh- we're walking through how they were thought through by other Christians who came before us. And so hopefully that becomes a helpful means of understanding um, the mind of those at Constantinople in 31. Um, so that's it for this episode. And the next episode, we will go into the Aryan controversy uh, and... Uh, yeah, the Aryan controversy. I think that's all we're talking about in the next episode. So it's going to be a shorter one, I think. The Aryan controversy. And then I have, um, Nicaea. We might merge Nicaea and the Aryan controversy. We'll see. So the next episode will be the Aryan controversy and maybe Nicaea 325 and Athanasius. Um, I haven't decided how I'm going to break that one up yet. But we're trucking along. Um... And that's it. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.